Welcome to the Talk and Shed Podcast with your host, Adam Finnick, where we talk all things farm equipment. Tune in as we interview farmers, industry leaders, and talk about our own dealership story. Follow along as we talk about topics like cover crops, nutrient placement, and things that make your farm and every farm across the country different. You're listening to the Talk and Shed Podcast, and thank you for tuning in. Well, guys, today we are here at uh, my parents' house. We had some hardy training uh, here this morning, and I kind of just let the cat out of the bag on what we're going to be talking about today. We've got Mike Flat, CEO of uh, Hardy North America, uh, the sprayers, of course. And uh, Mike, how are you today? Doing great. Awesome. So this morning, um, you know, we had some training. Um, the news has been out for a little while, but this is our latest lineup of products the hardy sprayer and uh we had guys come in this morning and we did some training um let's just jump right in and talk about the sprayers themselves uh hardy as a company and what they do yeah the as you saw today and as most people know about our products it's been a very very consistent product over the years it's obviously had some innovation <clears throat> as times evolved and as the consumer needs have changed but you've also seen a very very stable product as well so spare parts haven't changed a whole lot over the years Uh, 40-year evolution of course they have but we're not leapfrogging technology year after year where it causes a huge support situation so our guys have gotten really really intimate with the product and we like to convey that to the dealer as well because the the ultimate goal as we're partnered together as manufacturer and dealer is that the end consumer has a really really good customer experience so that means from the purchasing side when they make that purchase decision all the way down to 10 years down the line when something's not working right so uh, from a from a product standpoint um, we're a european design product they give us a finished product and then we take about 80 percent of that and we release that to the north american market so what a farmer in say ontario or alberta or illinois or ohio what they want is maybe not what somebody in england or scotland or the ukraine or another place in the world would want Um, so we all adapt them a little bit to our individual markets so the bulk of the engineering comes uh, from denmark from overseas they supply that kind of core product to us and then we we do the final tweaks to make it fit our market i see um there's of course a lot of different sprayer options out there you know the self-propelled are really gaining some steam you've got john deere who's purchased Hagee, and of course the case ih and several others um you know why hardy you know (laughs) if if a guy wants a sprayer yep um why that's a good question. We answer that one all the time. Uh, it's there are so many good pieces of equipment on the market today. You know, I, I equated a lot to pickup trucks or cars. It's hard to make a bad choice in a piece of equipment today. Right. If if you're going to get a self-propelled sprayer, you're going to get a trailed sprayer. It you're going to end up with a good piece of equipment. I mean, the market gets rid of the junk. Yeah. Um, so now there are some really really low cost options out there. But we're not targeted that. I mean, we're typically going after that premium customer that happens to want an appeal for a trailed product. So that that fits our niche. But then why ours specific over the competitive products? The main thing that we've done over the years is we've designed this sprayer to work together. 
Uh, we take some dings from time to time because our products are proprietary. So the pumps, the nozzle bodies, the tips, the valves, those are not off-the-shelf products that are commonly available everywhere. But that's been a singular designed thought process from the parent corporation for all of these components to work together hand-in-hand. Hand. You guys heard about the DF4 system, mm -hmm. right? That was yep. completely developed by our engineers on our trailed sprayer to work the way that it works to provide a redundant system for the best application that we know how to make. And that's really why I say that, that people want to go with our products yeah. is because it was all designed to work together. It's not a combination of off-the-shelf components that you have to make a compromise on how they do rate control, um, how that we do boom height control, how that we integrate the hydraulics uh, in connection with the tractor. So all those things are purposely done and very well thought out. But that's only a piece of the pie, right? Because the product is only one segment of that. So then behind that is a dealer network that takes care of that product. And right. we're pretty picky about who we select as dealers. So if you're going to select our product, you need to be considering who's going to be that field representative or who's going to be the people that are going to be taking care of that product. This is not a two or three or four year product. This is a sometimes a lifetime product. Mm -hmm. We're still servicing products that have been in the field for 20 plus years. Every day we take phone calls on stuff that's been in the field for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. How many of our competitive products do you see that have been out there? So that, right. that kind of superior engineered product is going to be out there for a very long time and then going to be taken care of, hopefully a very good partner in the field. And then behind that good situation for support is us supporting that dealer and the end consumer ultimately as well. But, you know, it's kind of dual layer support. So excellent product, good infield support, and then good manufacturer support on top of that. I think we're pretty hard to beat when you put all that together. I would agree. <clears throat> I mean, you know, we we carry a lot of different short line products, and I was very impressed today with the backbone that Hardy has. You know, a lot of companies say, "Oh, you know, if you need help, call support." But I mean, not only do you have a support line, you've got a manual that literally reads on the front something along the lines of the sprayer textbook. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got. Uh, diagrams laid out of the hydraulic schematics the electronic schematics and you can tell that there's oh, the YouTube channel you can tell there's a ton of time and effort put into the troubleshooting to keep the customer up and running mm -hmm. and uh, out of all the short lines that we carry uh, so far it seems Hardy has extremely high quality back-end support which is crucial for me i agree being a salesman <clears throat> i agree and, and that's that's our biggest trouble as far as being salesmen is knowing where to go find the information well you guys have already kind of helped us out with not only this dealer training but also you know helping us figure out where the information is and telling us who you know this is the guy you need to call he he'll know this he'll know that that's who you call for that if you need something else just something a little simple call him there you go so and that helps. And we're a little different at Fenny Equipment. The the sales guys are also the support guys. Mm -hmm. You know, um, sure we've got techs in the shop that when things get hairy, we call them in. But we're the first line of defense because mm -hmm. when you sell the product, who's the customer going to call? Well, he's going to call a salesman. Yep. He doesn't right. have the guy in the shop's number. And so we try to troubleshoot it and get pretty familiar with the product. So 
if we don't know, we need some place to go um, other than our shop guys because nine times out of ten, they are buried deep in enough work. Um, so yeah, that that's very impressive. And um, <clears throat> I want to bounce around. We can talk product all day long, um, but I also want to jump into what got Mike here today. <laughs> you know, not only. Uh, why you're physically here right now uh, recording the podcast, but uh, what were your steps? Did you farm growing up? And, and you know, how in the world did the application of CEO for Hardy slide on your desk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It wasn't out of the newspaper. I can yeah. tell you that. So. No, it, uh, maybe an interesting story, but uh, so kind of a small town guy. Uh, mom and dad had a small cattle operation but dad had a day job mom had a day job we weren't making a living off of that so but grew up in rural america for sure what kind of cattle uh, just beef cattle yeah just yeah, mixed breed beef cattle awesome so, <clears throat> yep. uh so again that wasn't anything to do with our livelihood but uh went to college went to purdue university uh had the desire to go be an industrial tech guy i wanted to go sell big pieces of equipment you know work for a ge type corporation was my end goal million dollar plus pieces mm -hmm. of equipment sales at a time and when i got out of college i got in an outside sales role and quickly learned that a i had no business being in a big corporation politics and decisions that i had nothing to do with all of a sudden were going to affect my life and mm -hmm. um, i figured out that wasn't the way i was wired and the other thing that i i learned pretty quick is if you're going to sell, you have to learn the operations side first, in my opinion. You know, I did not want to sell anything that I didn't know how to use, that I didn't understand what I was doing with the product. If the product wasn't good, uh, that first job I had, we sold some products that weren't great products, and I just I couldn't do it. I uh, made a sales call down at Equipment Technologies. They make the Apache self-propelled sprayer. And when I walked in the door, it turned out I knew the people that had started the company and owned it at the time. Kind of a long story short, ended up working there uh, roughly about six months later. So I spent 19 years of my career with ET, and I did everything. I worked in the shop for three and a half years in quality control, and that kind of gave me the background to understand product knowledge, understand how rate control works, understand how GPS works. I was part of the group of people, uh, certainly not myself by myself, but I was part of the group that we put the first factory installed auto steer on an Apache, was a Raven product. Uh, we worked with Montgomery Industries before Raven Bottom and became the auto boom system that has now evolved into XRT. So I was in the early days of a lot of that, uh, got exposure to that, and had the opportunity to go start a retail operation in Illinois as a part of ET, uh, but did that for eight years. So I, I ran a retail dealership there, moved my family, um, repped Apache. We sold BBI products over there, uh, repped GVM for a period of time. So. That, that really changed my whole world to go from the manufacturing side of the world and, you know, here's what it looks like when it's clean and neat in the factory to this is how the product's being used and riding in the cab with the farmer mm -hmm. day in, day out. And kind of similar to your operation, ours, we had one rule and it, nobody could ever say, that's not my job, right? If the phone rang and a customer needed help, that's what we did. Um, side note story, uh, when we first moved into this old junky building, we didn't have a voicemail system. And the guy came in and said, oh, it's gonna be $6,000 for a voicemail system. We had like five people working there at the time. And I go, oh, come on, man, we're, we're not gonna spend $6,000 on voicemail. So at the end of every day, I would forward the office phone to my cell phone. And then that just stuck. So every day for eight years, when our office was closed, 
every call that came into that office went to my cell phone. So I, I knew what was going on at every moment with the business yep. and you could feel the pain points coming in. So when service got overwhelmed, I had to call my salespeople <clears> and go, <throat> guys, you got to help. Right. It may be for a day or two or a week, but y'all got to help. Mm-hmm. Right. Parts people, same way. Our office manager, um, we meet technicians out in the field, run them parts. We, it was an all hands on deck kind of business, you know, and eventually we ended up, I think with 15 employees at, at the, at the peak. Um, and you learned a lot about how retail business operated and that really changed my whole way of thinking. So kind of fast forward, um, about another five or six years, I continued to kind of advance my way a little bit through ET and get exposure to different things. ET got purchased by Excel industries out of Paris, France. They happen to own Hardy as well. So this parent corporation, um, which really ran their businesses uh, as a federation of businesses. There wasn't a whole lot of cooperation there, but I could see I had a little bit of a vision there that there could probably stand to be some more cooperation. And I got interested in uh, potentially doing something with another one of the group companies. So a little reluctantly, I actually, it was a hard decision to leave ET to go to Hardy um, to make that switch. But uh, I made that switch in January of 2019, you know, kind of pre-COVID. So We've gone through a lot since then, but uh, that's how I, I kind of landed in that role. So the the opportunity was presented to me, and, and I felt <clears> like I had the background to, to do the job some justice. So On the retail side out there, you basically you guys were just selling equipment, basically? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. And um, so mainly application, I take mm-hmm. it. <clears throat> so that business structure had to be, like you said, extremely similar to what we're doing today. Yeah. Um, the, the one difference that we had, we were, we were owned by one of our manufacturers. Um, so ET owned the company. We ran it as a retail <laughs> brand. We ran it as a line ice sprayer. Uh, and, it, and it did quite well. But when we were very slim product focused, it was tough. You know, that's a, that's a tough way to earn a living was if you have too narrow of a focus on your product, um, you know, you go in a down sales cycle for self-propelled sprayers and everything, everything's hurting fast. Mm-hmm. So, right. yep. Um, you know, for us, um, you know, a lot of people say that you can't outsell your, your service team. And that's true. There's definitely times of the year, like right now, when, um, like this morning, I started off in the shop this morning, starting to put a piece together. You can outsell your service team, but then someone else has to step in. And this is a time of year where like Cody and myself, we're kind of on the service team today. And we will be um, sure there's sales to be had, but you can't send sales guys out on the road when you've got sold equipment needing finished up and <clears throat> and done. So it's constantly a rat race. It's a good position to be in when you have potentially outkicked your coverage, but um, it's better than being the other way. But uh, that's a line that we walk all the time. We'll sell, 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 and then all of a sudden here comes season. Now we're service, service, yeah. service. But um, it, it, it's a, a fine line to walk. Um, you know, what all, being CEO, what all are you in charge of at uh, Hardy today? So we made a tough decision. It uh, would have been a, about two years ago now. <clears throat> We had a factory in Davenport, Iowa. It was uh, about 140,000 square feet under roof. So we were doing all our manufacturing there, assembly for the most part. So we'd bring in um, a mix of 
finished goods that are ready to be bolted together, some raw material that are waiting to be powder coated and assembled. Um, and we had done that in that factory for many, many years. Um, but our volumes, with the up and down cycles of ag, our volumes did not dictate that we could justify that big installed base of employees in that big uh, footprint of, uh, I'm going to answer your question directly, indirectly. But uh, so we, we, we had all this uh, infrastructure for a lot higher volume base than what we were performing at. Um, so let me answer that question first before I jump to that one. But so all sales support, uh, manufacturing ultimately, and then the distribution network. So everybody that, anything that happens on this continent, ultimately uh, I, I toe the line for it. Yep. Now, obviously I got a great team uh, that, that actually does all the real work. I just, I end up with the responsibility for it. So, yep. yep. But you know, day to day, ultimately, I'm, I really kind of keep my eye on the sales team. Uh, you guys met James Smith and James yep. is product support manager. Mm -hmm fantastic job on the support side so we combine parts and service into a single entity and we call it product support now so that's been really good to kind of have that singular mind and, and it is product support it's what happens after the manufacturing side and then uh, James's team takes over from there um, we have a great office structure so I don't have to intervene a whole lot there we've got a, a little bit of engineering team and we got a, a small marketing group but beyond that it's the sales team really that does it but just as you saw today, we're we're kind of like you guys. We're pretty integrated. Um, you know, Tim Urena, uh, who's your territory manager, Tim does a really, really good job of kind of balancing that support and sales because Tim is a natural salesperson. I mean, that's what his heart is in. You can tell it. Yeah. Um, but to sell our products, you have to support them. Right. So that's part of the job. Right. Yeah, you have to know them. And, yep. and and that's where everything that we really deal with, you know, we, we feel like we're experts in them because if you're not an ex expert in something, then how can you sell it? That's our <clears throat> viewpoint. Well, I think that bleeds with application in general. Mm -hmm. Like there are certain things that we, that you can sell and really not know anything about it. And, you can get by with it application equipment that's not one of them mm -hmm. you know when a guy goes to to the field with a new piece of application equipment you're going to know it yeah. like hey i'm you know what's this do what's this is this right there's just a lot of things going on i mean you're making an important pass you know and uh so it which is you know it's obvious why you need the in-depth product support that you guys do um, but there's a lot of companies that, that cut some corners there, sure. whereas <clears throat> you guys do not. Well, and I, I think that, and I haven't even mentioned the folks that are overseas that are supporting us, right? We're a very small operation here in, in the U.S. and Canada. But okay. if you look behind us, right, the parent corporation in Denmark, it's always an impressive place to take people because they go, oh, my gosh, yeah, here's this giant factory where they're turning raw steel into finished goods sprayer mm -hmm. out the back door. Uh, the parts support operation that we have in France, we have another manufacturing uh, operation in Australia. We have a sales and service and support office in Germany. You don't see all that when you're here in the U.S. You you see what's right in front of you. Right. Uh, but it's a you know it's a big global corporation. It's a so basically you have welded components coming into what location in the United States. So when we when we closed the manufacturing operation in Davenport, we actually combined it uh, with the operation side of equipment technology, so the Apache sprayer. So the ultimately the we kind of quote unquote outsource our assembly operation to the ET team that does assembly as well. 
which was a good transition because I knew those folks very well. I knew that we couldn't sustain the way we were, and this was a this was a way to trim some of those fixed costs out and put the what I call right size the business. Right, the the business was bigger than we could support, so we right sized the business to the operation. Um, we got people that really really know how to manufacture, how to assemble very well, and ET is a very similar company to what we do. They don't do any cutting, bending, or powder coating. They'll do welding and assembly. At Hardy, we did no cutting, bending, welding, but we did powder coating and assembly. So we were used to bringing in things that are just about ready to be bolted together. I see. And then, then what do you do with it? And how do you package it? And how do you freight it? How do you get it to the dealer network? How do you support it? And so, so kind of both operations were very, very similar in how they worked. <clears throat> ET, um, you know, they own kind of a, a unique sprayer as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got a niche deal, kind of like Hardy, but, you know, that, that mid-size self-propelled. Um, what all things is ET into? You know, I think they've got like some online sprayer part stuff. What all do they do? Well, finished goods-wise or, or whole goods-wise, it's it's singular product. It's, it's the Apache sprayer and have a variety of models there. Um, but, yeah, so... I started that retail operation in 2006, and very quickly it spawned to more retail locations. So uh, I believe it's nine physical locations now that we have uh, throughout the U.S. and Canada that do retail sales. And I think you might have heard me say earlier today, you know, one of the things that keeps me up at night is how to get your product to market. I continually stress about how do we take what we believe is a great product and get it to the people that can use it. And we have to have that distribution network there. When we found at ET, one of the problems early on is it took a special dealer to be able to handle our types of products. You had to have a sales department, a parts department, a service department. Oh, and you couldn't probably be selling a competitive sprayer because you probably didn't have the capacity for that. So it was really, really difficult to find the right distribution partners that would work for us. So ultimately, out of necessity, we created our own stores. Uh, So we started that store in Illinois pretty soon that one was opened in Kentucky then a second was opened in Kentucky and it just kind of grew from there So it's that product and all of its support features But when those retail operations started growing our volumes in Hypro, T-Jet, Banjo um, Raven those type of components started growing too as did our purchasing power Mm -hmm. and that's when online sales become a thing and, and now all of a sudden we're going wow and, and I say we, I'm, I was watching it. Other people that really knew what they were doing, I was watching them do their work. But uh, uh, that team there did a great, great job of recognizing the fact that, hey, we have things that folks want to buy and we need to give them easier access to them. So they started uh, SpraySmarter.com. And SpraySmarter is kind of the retail arm of that. I don't want to say the anti-Hardy, but very different from what Hardy does. Is those are the non-unique products that are ubiquitous to the majority of the sprayers that are in North America and they give a very very easy access to those components because it's very difficult for all of your retailers at every county in Ohio or every county in Indiana to have that inventory at your fingertips for that season that lasts what 90 days 120 mm-hmm. days right it's almost improbable to happen um, you know we've almost uh, every industry has gone to some type of centralized distribution and that's the centralized distribution for us is we can stock those uh, components in a single place and either get them out on an as-needed basis to those retail locations or sell them via the website. Uh, and it gets folks the parts that they need in, a, in a, the most efficient manner. And hopefully provides for that good customer experience too. 
Right. If, if your parts are broke and you go to the store and they don't have what you need, now what do you do? Right. Today, you go on the internet and you look those parts up. And, and you find them. And you find them. Is, is that Spray Smarter stuff pretty – is that a popular website? Is yep. that really going? Yep. I You know, <clears throat> there's times when I've needed something. Maybe I couldn't get my hands on a Raven RCM or something, and you Google that, and Raven RCM, that is, and you get Spray Smarter or – um, whatever it is. And I always wondered how that online sales of those parts went. You know, it was uh, it was a conscious effort because we had these retail brands out there too, right? <laughs> so you had a line ice sprayer company, you had Ohio Valley Ag, you had High Plains Apache, which uh, Southern Application Management, those were all retail brands that ET owned. And do you go put a skin on that and make it all look like four different retail brands or five different retail brands? Or does it make more sense to have a singular retail brand and i think that uh, et did a really good job at that point in time and said look let's not mess around with the semantics of this if we make one platform that the customer can go to it doesn't need to look different in ohio than it looks in indiana or it looks in illinois it can look the same the the customer is sharp enough to kind of see through whatever that main page looks like right. just give the folks the parts that they're looking for in right. an efficient way Right. Yep. <clears throat> That's very interesting. Of course, being a a small dealership like we are, and of course, you always feel like, you know, what do I do with all these extra parts like you did there? <laughs> I need to stock them, but how can I distribute them everywhere? And we've always kicked that around with, you know, um, some of our Yetter parts, some of the Salford parts. So I was always curious about how that thing, how those things work, but you got to find the niche and really run with it, you know, build the website and all that. So there are some barriers to entry for that. And of course it takes a team, yep. <laughs> a big team and an army to get all that done. So, um, we're not quite there yet, but maybe someday. Yeah. And it's been interesting. I don't really get involved in that side of the business. I watch it happen. And it's interesting to see the people that are buying those products online. There'll be a run on these hand rinse jug or, uh, inductor cones mm -hmm. and it turns out brewers are are using these to brew beer with and somebody on a brewing website said hey here's a spot where you can get this inductor cone or this hand okay. wash thing right and your next thing you know you just sold 150 of those things and you have yeah. no idea why yeah uh, industrial yeah. users so um, factories um, other people that are making industrial equipment they're using banjo products they're using stainless steel fittings they're mm -hmm. using for all things worm gear clamps that maybe aren't as easy to find online as as a lot of other things are and we have them right there and we tell people what our stock is so they don't place an order for something and oh wait we don't have that so, right yep it, they, they do a good job with it really yeah that is impressive you know sometimes we take it for granted everyone has their their own place where they get stuff and you know i'm sure there's someone in some other industry um talking right now about you know yeah, we, we know how how to get this, maybe coffee cups. But if I needed some, I would just Google it and yep. probably buy it from their warehouse. Yep. So everyone has their place. But to have a universal uh, deal like that is, is pretty unique. I always wondered who in the world started that website, to be <laughs> honest. And um, there was actually a time when I think I called ET and dug into it really deep to try and find who developed that. Yep. And uh, but um you know, being CEO today, you're managing a lot of people. And um, through you said you started right when COVID had started. Yeah, just just before the year before. So I had a full year under my belt when it hit. 
So COVID, of course, has changed a lot of things. Um, I'll ask a question that has a lot of different uh, phases to it. Um, you know, today there's a, a shortage, quote unquote, of things, and they're hard to get. In, in your industry, what is the real cause of the shortage, and what is Hardy doing to get around that corner? Well, there's no one cause, but I can tell you a couple of simple things. So when the world shut down for, let's say, 45 or 60 days, so everything stops, factories are closed, there's trucking not happening, all these things stop, you would say, well, everything, but everything didn't stop. Only certain things stopped. And you, you take one of those pieces of the puzzle out and everything else keeps moving, you're going to run into a real big problem at some point in the future. And so let's just take hydraulic cylinders, for example. All hardy hydraulic cylinders come out of Italy. Do you remember what was going on in Italy in 2020? Yeah. So they're not going to work. They're not making any hydraulic cylinders. We're still feeling the effects of that. You can't, you just can't take off work for, and I'm not saying that folks weren't willing to work, right. but they were told not to, right? We're right. told not to go to work. It's, <clears throat> it's the safest thing with the information we had at the time not to go to work and not to fire those factories up. And that thing is a long tail on it. It's still happening. Shanghai, China, right? We're shut down. They're shut down right now. What are those factories making? Are they making those coffee cups that you're looking at mm. there? Or that electrical connector that seems to be a continued global shortage? Or the plastic Deutsch clips? Or you name it. Um, so, you, so you take that and you compartmentalize it and go, okay, so you shut down industry for 45 or 60 days or more. And then... Behind that, you take a year plus, well, we're actually probably, what, pushing two years into mm -hmm. it now, right. trucking and shipping disruptions. So people that have opted out of the workforce, people that have made career changes away from trucking and global supply chain, um, and you take those trucks off the road for a period of time, look at that disruption that that creates. On top of all that, so those, those two things are enough, but then on top of all that, the global spend to keep all of our economies from collapsing, right? Which was necessary, but obviously it was overdone. But it's not something that, you know, it's... I would not want that responsibility to have to meter in those funds to know when enough is enough and when enough is not enough. Right. I, I can't imagine having those worries every, every night as you're trying to go to sleep. But So you take the shutdown of industry... Couple that with trucking and for our situation, international freight. So we're shipping container freight, which used to be five weeks door to door. We've had 11 and a half, 12 weeks for containers to get door to door with very little visibility in between. So how do you plan for that in the manufacturing world? You can't. Right. In a cyclical business, mind you. Right. Because so, <laughs> we go up and we go down and then we're seasonal on top of that. Yeah. And then you take this enormous spike in demand that was caused by spending by the US government, right? We gave a lot of money into our space. And then on top of that, commodities went up, which put money in farmers' pockets. So you took the spend plus the increased commodity prices. And it, so we've got unprecedented demand behind all of that. And anytime you have a shortage in high demand, it's gonna be tough. But then you throw in the reasons for those shortages and they're not, they're not done yet. We're not, we're not done with those disruptions yet. And then, my gosh, behind that, you got labor issues and everything else. You know, that mm -hmm. uh, it has been a challenge for us for probably six to 12 months. We were fighting a labor shortage where we could have used more people. We had enough material. 
and pretty quickly once we got the people we could we ran our material to to the point where now it's a material issue for us so yeah that's uh everything you explained pretty pretty much what i've I've heard you know everyone has their own reasons because it's different for every business it is. but it, it has affected pretty well everyone um earlier today you mentioned that you know you can't be really looking at what's happening today you need to look out on what's going to happen in nine months given what you just said about the shortages and everything and you said it has a long tail on it when does the tail end and what does that look like for for ag i wish i knew i really did uh, unfortunately uh, my personal belief is is when the and i'm not good at predictions so um <laughs> I'll just tell you that, that if, if I could tell you those types of things, I probably wouldn't have to work for a living. But, right. Um, unfortunately, when we see manufacturing cap capacity catch up to demand, it's likely to be a decrease in demand that's going to cause that. Right. And it's going to be a decrease in demand, whether it's industry spending uh, or uh, inflation has got us to some degree <clears throat> or just uncertainty. Right. That's in, in, in our world. When farmers are uncertain, they stop. They right. just pause. You know, they're pretty conservative folks, and they say, "Look, if I don't know what a year or two is going to bring, I'm just going to pause for a minute." That decreases demand, and ultimately, manufacturing capacity will catch up. So, that's not necessarily a good thing. Let's try and fix the supply thing with good demand that we have today. Right. Um, what's that going to look like? I'm a I'm a capitalist at heart. I think the market will solve the problem which means we will put spending, we will make investments in whether infrastructure or inventory or increased freight expenses that we talked about. We're air freighting a lot today. Um, industry will solve the problem. Um, ultimately, capitalism will solve the problem. But <clears throat> do you think, and this, this is something I wonder about, you know, because we've been doing it for the last two years and, and we talk about it all the time. We have the inventory. We have the inventory. We, we can do this. We can do that. Do you think that in this time you try so hard to keep things pushing out the door, to keep things rolling when everyone else is struggling and try and get ahead of that curve that you overshoot it? And all of a sudden the tail ends, the demand drops, and here you you have become extremely efficient because you've been trained for the last two years. you got to be efficient, efficient. All of a sudden demand drops. There's uncertainty. Then what? You know, <clears throat> are we... Are we working too hard to get around this short-lived, I, I know it seems like it's dragging on forever, but this short-lived problem that when we come out on the tail end, you kind of get to where you guys were in Davenport, Iowa, where you're like, okay, you know, we have all this, but can that, is that sustainable? You know, because today what we're doing is we're, we're not only supplying our own customers, but we're supplying all the other customers that used to buy from the dealerships that are no longer willing to stick their neck out on inventory. <clears throat> that That's what's building us today. Yeah. So what happens when the dealers who used to be able to get by by not stocking stuff because you could get something door-to-door -door in five weeks, when their lack of motivation, lack of, um, you know, want, wanting to go do business, when that starts to work for them again? You know, what do you do then? And all of a sudden, all the inventory just doesn't make sense. That's what I wonder. Well, I think we're all we're all a product of our experiences, right? So hopefully, 
as we age, we get a little bit smarter as time goes. Uh, I would hope anyway. I feel like I have a little bit anyway, maybe just a smidge. But uh, So I think our customers are very similar. They know who took care of them when nobody else did. Yeah. And I think folks will remember that. Um, so I want to I answer this from two perspectives. I'm going to answer it from your perspective first. And this might seem a little odd, but there's a difference between being, I'm going to call it hungry and aggressive and being reckless. Yeah. You guys are not being reckless. You're being hungry and you're being aggressive, but yeah. I don't I don't see recklessness here. You know, if you told me that you were going to buy 180 acres behind the shop and start stockpiling equipment <laughs> and you were down at the bank and you were, you know, getting a huge line of credit out, it, that I would start to question that. Right. And and you're you're not even close to that point. What you're doing is you're making an assessment probably week to week, month to month, where are we at on inventory? What does our gut tell us? Because, again, you're a product of all your experiences. And you can have all the Excel spreadsheets you want and all the forecasts you want. And I guarantee you, every model that everybody will build you will be wrong. Right. Your gut will tell you a good part of the way of, of what it is that you need to do. And I think you guys are the folks that are doing that gut check and going, okay, we're not going to overextend ourselves, but we're going to capitalize when the time is there. Mm -hmm. And the time is now for you guys. And, yeah. and hats off to you for having the guts to do it. Because uh, it's that fear, some folks that maybe maybe they got burnt in the past, that they, right. they can't or don't want to have that fear again, that they're going to end up overstocked. Um, you know, so that's that's the way I see the world from your perspective, which may or may not be accurate, but I, that's the way I think you guys are operating. For Lake Hardy, for instance, um, us too, we're, we're a product of our experiences. So we know what it's like to ramp up. We know what it's like to put another addition on the building when you couldn't quite justify it. And eventually those decisions, when you go a little bit too hard, too fast, will come back and bite you. And, and ultimately, you know, Hardy wasn't hurt in the end. Fortunately, you know, everybody's uh, we're still operational, we're still supporting product, we're still selling product, but we're a heck of a lot stronger today than we were maybe three years ago, mm -hmm. right? We're in a better financial position, we're in a better structural position um, that in the next, the next down cycle, which will come eventually, I don't know when, hope it's a long time from now, but it will come. We're in a much, much stronger position. You know, this has been, we talk about these products that are 30, 40 years old. I don't know how long this thing's going to go on, but at least that many more, I, I would certainly think, you know, right. I'm not going to see the end of this in my career. Uh, I certainly hope not. It's, it's too good of a product. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you know, the, the products that, that Hardy is making today, like you said, have been around for, for a while. I mean, it's a pull type sprayer, mm -hmm. three point sprayer. You know, we saw a, <clears throat> the mega, today it's kind of a newer product um what other things you know in in a lot of things that or one thing i know of that a lot of people don't know about is the hardy self-propelled sprayer what other things are there out there maybe they're on the horizon maybe they're on the whiteboard but what is down the road for hardy you know if if uh you are looking for more innovation um you know you see a lot of different things in sprayer technologies the exact apply the cn spray you know where's hardy at on on stuff like that is that does that fit the niche so from a 
the global perspective is different than the local perspective for us. So here, here's a perfect example is we brought some Navigator I um, units into the U.S. a couple years back. So that the Navigator is a smaller chassis, smaller uh, frame machine than the Commander is. So steering is an enviable feature set that the Commander had available that the Navigator didn't in North America. The Nav-I for us was a way to get steering on a Navigator. Uh, something else that we had customers talking about, individual nozzle control. The Nav-I had those features. Um, it had an electric valve on the inlet side, so you could tell that I want to put 500 gallons in it, and the valve will close at 500 gallons. So we had what I would call the bulk of the latest technology that we put on a trailed sprayer, and we didn't get any traction from it. Um, I, I feel like we marketed it pretty hard, but I, I think what we figured out is we one of two things. We either hit a price point that people were not willing to pay in a trailed sprayer for that feature set of technology. They liked the technology, but the price point pushed them over the edge, and they said, well, if I'm going to spend that much, I'm going to go to a self-propelled machine. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the, the other thing that I, that I think um, may have been, and, and I don't... You never know the real reasons why, but it might be, thanks for solving the problem that I didn't have. Right. Right? Is the, the guy that buys our product, he wants a fairly simple product that's going to work for a very, very long period of time. Mm -hmm. It's going to be pretty much trouble-free. It's going to be pretty much easy to work on. Uh, and then you start throwing all these sensors and all these uh, stepper motors and all these <clears throat> complexities on the machine, and you've changed what the identity of that product is. So I, it didn't really fit in our market. Um, so what is, what's Hardy working on globally, they're working on all those things that you're talking about. Fortunately, with the Excel group, is we have a number of sprayer companies that are all in the same ownership group. So they're working on camera technology uh, at a group level. So ultimately, if they, they solve that problem, then we can all share in that technology eventually. But uh, you know, will we see that trickle down into the US uh, on a trailed sprayer? Uh, I could see us making it an, an option at some point in time, but what the last several years have told me is our core <clears throat> buyer, maybe that's not the feature set that they're looking for yeah. um, be, because we had it available and, and it got no traction. Yeah. So, you know, Hardy works on the things that are going to impact the most people. So from a global perspective, they just released the Aon product about a year ago. So the high spec big capacity, you know, very expensive trailed sprayer. When we, I'm, I'm not even going to try to bring that product to North America because the, the market's already pushed back on that type of cost for me. And I straddled that line with self-propels. Um, I, I sold self-propels with ET for a, a number of years. I, I know the market very well. I, I actually work with both companies currently, so I have a role at ET today. When we got rid of manufacturing, it created some capacity with my time that I could uh, share roles between ET and Hardy. So I get to kind of see both sides of the fence of it. So I, yeah, we'll we'll bring technology that makes sense, but it it can't at Hardy it can't take away from what our core buyer is really looking for when they buy one of our products. Yeah, the <clears throat> the best thing to take from that, in my opinion, is the fact that. You, you know your product, know who you are. That can be a hard pill to swallow. It's like learning that you don't want every sale. 
in a way. You it's know? terribly hard to say no to people. Right. It is. Right. But when you can finally figure out your market and, and who you are, um, you know, there's enough sales out there for everyone to be fed. Um, but whenever you figure out who you are, who your market is, and, and, and what you are and what you aren't, when you can distinguish that, that that's when you roll in my opinion that's when you can say no to that and and extremely confidently say yes to that and that's when you can make some really good decisions in my opinion and that's when i think you know we've been approached by several companies or we have approached several companies about selling their product oh you know we're an equipment dealership so why not just combine just just load it up you know <laughs> well luckily you know most of the time dad's there to swing the hammer and say no you're ding dong you know don't do that so looking back it's like man i'm so glad we didn't start selling that product or you know there's no way that would have fit us but right. you know sitting through the training today you know he's like yeah here's your flow meter here's your valve and you know, ISO this, I'm like, geez, and Pete's, this is just right up our alley. Right. You know, application with, with what we're already doing. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think, um, yeah, I think it's going to add to the to the mix. But what I wanted to say there is it's impressive that, that your mindset is going to uh, what you are and what you aren't. Well, you mentioned self-propelled. So let me tell the story of Hardy self-propelled. So as, as the market got really, really hot in, I'm going to say 2011, 2013, that time frame. You know that time frame, right? Oh, $7 yeah. corn, things were doing really <laughs> well. Hardy had self-propelled sprayers in Europe. They were selling self-propelled sprayers in Australia. They bring self-propelled sprayers to the U.S. Um, not bad products. They're fine products. They just weren't products that were feature set and fit with an American farmer. Very European-centric um, European controls, it, it felt different. Right. And this was not a market that said we need more sprayers in it. Yeah. Right. We there's enough self-propelled yeah. sprayers on the market to satisfy demand. Right. Um, but you know, at that time, the market was probably what, eight thousand, eighty five hundred units. That's a pretty good size market. Yeah. And and you could say, okay, if we can get five or ten percent of that, that's enough to keep us fed. Mm -hmm. And that's right. But your customer base and our dealer base, which our dealer base is, your guys are not our prototypical dealer. Our dealer base is a few specialists like you guys, but then a whole lot of John Deere and Case dealers that they're doing tractors, combines, planters, self-propelled sprayers, and these things, and they also sell Hardy. And mm -hmm. they're successful at it. They do a very good job for us, but they don't want to take on another self-propelled line. You guys are, you know, you're kind of in the sweet spot. We had a lot of uh, smaller businesses. We're talking three to five employees that are selling our products. They can't take on a self-propelled sprayer no. and get two service trucks and a dedicated salesperson or two. It, it'll cripple that company to go out and right. sell one every other year. Yeah. So our distribution network wasn't set up for it. The product didn't meet our market's needs. Um, ultimately, this supply chain and manufacturing cycle was too far away. So we couldn't affect uh, when product was getting built. Was it going to make it here on season by time? And, and all the things that are related to that. Oh, and here's the innovation that the product has to have to meet our market weight. Our volumes aren't enough to dictate that. Right. So eventually, 
And that was a really, really hard decision that we made when, when I joined Hardy was to say, no, uh, we're not good at this. It's not a profitable segment of our business. It's, um, it's not good for our dealers, ultimately. Uh, and that's a hard thing to say. Um, and, and I've talked to a lot of Hardy self-propelled owners that are very happy. And, and you know, so I don't, I don't have angry people calling me going, hey, I didn't, I didn't like your product or the dealer didn't take care of me. It's, it was a very satisfactory situation. But ultimately, it wasn't a win-win-win for everybody. And if everybody's not winning at it, eventually, it's it's not a good idea. So right, right. It, it forced us to create an infrastructure that wasn't, when the down cycle hit, it wasn't sustainable. Um, one of the things that when I first came in the company, I, I heard, I told people all the time, what we're doing today is not sustainable. I'm not saying we need to go make drastic changes, but long-term, this is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So. We sold our way through the self-propelled equipment, which took a, a period of time to do that. But we said we're going to do it the right way. We're going to get the machine uh, field ready. We're going to cooperate with the dealer. We're going to make sure that when the retail consumer buys it, they buy it eyes wide open for what the situation is. Uh, we matched the prices to market, which was painful for us. But that's uh, unfortunately the product's worth what somebody is willing to pay for it. So right. we did those things, and, and I think we did it in an honorable way. So. But hmm. those were hard decisions to make, right? And yeah. I, like I said, I know the self-propelled business, and it's, it's hard to walk away from that volume. But if, if you're not doing a good job with it, and ultimately everybody's not going to be happy at the end of the day, then, then you're probably on the wrong path. Right. So you've been in application for a long time, sprayers, mm-hmm. you name it. What's one of the bigger changes that you've seen just here in the last five years in I'm talking mainly the farmer practices and and what they use sprayers for. What's something you've seen change? I think that just the general sophistication of the farmer themselves. When I got started uh, in the in the early days, when you go to a farm, you know I remember seeing the first auto steer when I saw farmers using it on a tractor, and then I remember seeing the first RTK system. And I go, that's that's a game changer. Mm-hmm. You know, auto steer is nice, mm-hmm. but this is a game changer. And the customer that I met that originally was trying to install that WASP-based aftermarket auto steer system, that's a different customer today. The customers that I see today are more your guys' age, right? That um, it's, a, it's a father-son, it's a grandfather and a son Mm -hmm. it's an uncle and a nephew it's an uncle and a niece it's a father and his daughter whatever that makeup is is there's getting to be somebody younger in the operation that understands the technology and is willing to utilize that ultimately for a more efficient business and higher yields right Mm -hmm. because if if it's not going to make you more money or grow you more grain it's just a toy right Um, so it has to make money and and put bushels in the bin and so the sophistication of the grower is probably the, the single largest thing. And that can be anything from, you know, variable rate technology to uh, cover crop for folks that are trying to capture nutrient uh, in, in the winters. Um, uh, remember people starting to do variable rate seeding. Um, mm-hmm. And the first example I heard of that was a disaster. You know, the, the guy that did it, he, he went and put all of his data in from 10 years. And he said, okay, these hillsides, you know, they always burn up. And these bottoms, I never feel like I have enough seed in there. And he's like, so I'm going to pour the seed in the bottoms, and I'm going to lean it up on the hills. And it happened to be an extremely dry or 
extremely wet year, excuse mm-hmm. me, and choked out the bottoms with water and mm-hmm. starved the tops because they finally had sufficient moisture. But but you go to, you know, it's like you go to war with the, the army you have. So he went to the field with the data that he had. And that particular year, it, it didn't work. But it doesn't right. mean that it doesn't work. It just right. didn't work that particular year. So you know, this, the, the level... I see farmers checking, you know, their grain bin moisture with iPads. Right. That's not something you saw 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. Or even five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd see guys out there with the old yellow. I remember the old yellow, just moisture testers. They'd take a scoop full, put it in, screw it together. And, oh, yeah, good to go. (laughs) Which are still common today still. but I sold a lot of those mini gags. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, you know, uh, we deal with Ag Express down there at Sulphur Springs, and you know, you just look at how their business is growing. I think that kind of tells the story too right. on electronics and cables and all of the computers that you're throwing at these things. For us, you know, there's not too much too much stuff that we do anymore that doesn't have a nine pin ISO plug on mm-hmm. it. Yep. You know, um, sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. You know. Um, it, it can be a nice sleek way to do things but then of course with some electronics you do get some fumbling around mm-hmm. and stuff but you're right you know if if there's one thing out there that can make a guy more efficient make it easier to do if he can watch that screen he's going to do it and it seems that people are definitely willing to make the investment in the technology um, if it's going to help them grow more corn be more efficient or make the pass have less anxiety you know i feel like rate controllers do a lot of that Mm -hmm. you know is is an rc2000 more accurate than a ground drive pump on a planter yeah it probably is but i think what it's really doing is giving you more information Mm -hmm. you know you've got a live flow meter you've got you know your sections you just know a lot more and it gives you that peace of mind Mm -hmm. and not worrying just like the red balls we're talking basic stuff here but sure they tell you when it it's blocked but they don't yell at you or hit you in the head right you know you saw figured out but it's that anxiety thing i mm-hmm. think that you know doing the stuff that you do when you've got that much money on the line it they're you're nervous out yep. there you know and <clears throat> i think a lot of this equipment is designed to reduce that and uh guys are going to spend money to do that in my mm-hmm. opinion well, if you think about it, right, so let's just take $4 or $5 corn in the Midwest. What has happened to the price of seed, land, fuel, fertilizer, all these other things? And, and let's take this current spike aside. We're going to land back in those lower numbers for corn at some point in time. Yeah. So what does that mean? Are the cost of all those other inputs going to go down? Not typically. Some, some will. Some are uh, cyclical and market-based, but... Uh, is land price going to go down? You know, is crop insurance going to get any less expensive? So you're going to say no. That the way that those businesses are going to make it is they're going to have to get more efficient, right? right? If yep. we if we run our business the way that we ran it ten years ago, we're not going to make it. Right. We have to change. Yeah. But that's how I mean that we as humans we evolved, right? We we evolved to the to the level of what we need to survive first, and then thrive after that. Mm-hmm. And and you. You can see the folks that have figured it out, you mm-hmm. know, and they sometimes don't even know they figured it out yet. They're well, just like, hmm, I seem to be doing a little bit better than the folks right. around me. Right. right. It's, like, it's like a restaurant business, to be honest. Like if you see a, an owner that's, you know, say like a 70-year-old that has ran his business the constant same way for, the you know, the last 
25 years well he only stayed at one particular level he didn't do anything to innovate himself or anything like that to change with the the generations that come through his business so and i think you can see that just simply because you know we got different people trying to view i guess i don't know how i want to say that but it's basically you stay if you stay constant you'll never get anywhere if you stay with innovation you're always going to be able to see you're, you're always going to be going up in a way depending on how you run it but you can only gear as far as you can see right you know like uh what we're doing right now with inventory what hardy's doing right now with everything you're doing it, you can only do it as far as you can imagine and as far as you can see um i did a pod <clears throat> we did a podcast with j&m manufacturing there probably three four weeks ago and they said something that I thought was pretty interesting. We were talking about the future of J&M and, and what they're doing. And, and they said, they made a good point. They said, we can we can design something that we can't physically manufacture. Mm -hmm. You know, with our computers, we can make something that we don't have the manufacturing capacity to build. And so we got to be careful on how far we want to innovate and what products we think we need to develop because even though they are manufacturing, they are at the mercy of their capabilities, of their workforce and everything. And every business has your limitation. You have to find the limitation and see if it makes sense to enlarge that and, and grow it. Um, for us, uh, in the last couple of years, it was just, it was our manufacturing side. And I say that, and you're probably thinking, I, I don't, you guys don't manufacture anything. We, we manufacture a few small things, but it's things like we've got two guys who are as handy with a welder as, as we are with a pen. And we've got a, a little uh, um, Lincoln uh, plasma that, that makes little parts. And it's just little parts that when you're maybe you're mounting something on a planter and you need a plate, mm -hmm. it, it'll, it'll etch that out. So those little things that we used to have to call a company to draw and make it, we can now spit that stuff out in minutes. And so it was our it was our manufacturing and our assembly side. Our sales have been strong because we had the inventory and we knew the market and dad was aggressive. And so sales were always fine, but our 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 uh, bottleneck was manufacturing and getting things that were sold out in an efficient manner. So, so you chose to invest right. to solve your problem, right? Right. Yep. And we uh, we invested heavily in service trucks, service guys, everything service in the last 12 months. And it, it's been huge. Yeah, absolutely. And, even, and like Adam said, you know, right now we're going to be turning into, you know, sales guys or not sales, service guys here in the next, you know, 30 days, 40 days, 50 days, you know, however long this time span lasts for us. And we'll go out on the road and it wouldn't be, you know, we'll be out in Illinois, you know, because like Gary was telling you today, all those guys farm too. Well, we're the only ones that really <laughs> don't. So we're basically the service guys on that side of things. So we have to go out and service it. So it's kind of nice for us being sales guys too, being able to do the service side because it helps us learn the product as well. So... When I did retail, one of my policies was everybody that everybody that worked in the sales department had to be able to run the product. You had to be able to go to the field and spray, do a, a, a decent job. You don't have to be a professional applicator. Right. But my position was you can't 
speak from a position of authority if you don't know how to use the product, if you can't accurately do it. Tell people what your preferences are. And, and I would speak, and I didn't spray a ton, but I sprayed enough to, to be able to speak in a firsthand manner. When I spray, I like the right-hand boom around the outside because that's what I can see out of that window better. Right. I don't like the left <clears throat> boom for whatever particular reason. Right. I like to have two sets of tips on a machine at all times because if I need to slow down because of rough ground conditions, I don't want to feel like I'm pushing the speed of the sprayer too much. Right. Um, so just simple things like that that you can speak from the first person. But you got to go bloody your knuckles a little bit on it as well. So mm-hmm. Definitely. The only way to learn is to learn. Yeah. 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 And guys around here, they, you know, whether you like to or not, you're, you're going to get out there on the road and you're going to get in the trenches. Yep. Um, as your, your tenure in application um, grew and now you're, you're managing application company, um, what do you think, what was it uh, about you that made you fit the mold of CEO? You know, was it your experience? Was it your drive? And what is it that, that you see in other people that are CEOs or, or on that level that you say, man, he's good at that. And because everyone has their, their niche. Uh, myself personally, I, I'm not sure I can answer that one correctly. You know, I, I'm not a big, uh, a big vision type of person. I would say I'm much more a very practical person. Um, I like to take complex things and make them simple if I can. Um, I like to take a process that maybe you're very good at, but nobody else in the company knows how to do it. So let's boil it down to 10 steps. And then let's see if we can boil it down to six. And then let's write it down. And then let's post it. So now I took something that maybe was very mysterious and scary. And now anybody in the company can do it. So that's, that's one of the things that I like to do is, you know, Life isn't really that hard, and business isn't that hard. We make it hard on ourselves. If we would spend more time trying to make it easier for ourselves and make it easier to do business, I think it, it can be easier, but we have to have that as a, as a goal in mind. Um, you know, from a, from a person standpoint, you know, what I look for in a, in a team, from my early days at ET, uh, the group that mentored me there were just fantastic. They were a type of people that would let you fail, uh, let you make mistakes without fear of you know, public humiliation or getting fired or those types of things. And I made plenty of mistakes and still do, mm-hmm. but I'm not afraid to make a decision. If a decision needs made, I will make it. And I uh, very much want to surround myself with people that will make decisions. I hate to micromanage. I hate to be micromanaged. Uh, if people cannot work independently, then I'm a wrong person to work for because I'm going to give you the task and I'm probably going to, I have a lot of direct reports. I have effectively two jobs. I've with two different companies. So if, if you're going to need, I don't want to say constant handholding cause that's not a fair statement, but if you need constant help, then I've either not done a good job of letting you know what your job is and get you the tools to do it. Or I made a bad choice in the person. And usually it's on me. Like I didn't give them the tools to be successful. But um, I, I look for people that can run independent. They're not afraid. They'll make decisions. Uh, they don't take themselves too serious. You know, we like to have fun at work. If you're not laughing and having fun there, it, something's wrong. Right. And, and both companies have a good culture for, you know, it, 
laugh at yourself. You know, if, if there's fun to be poked, poke at yourself first. Um, but when it's time to get down to work, let's work really, really hard. Um, you know, I'll tell people, look, I may not be the smartest person in the room. Rarely am, but I would challenge you to find somebody that will outwork me. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. so I'll make it up with the things that I can control. Right. Um, whether it's, uh, experience and I need to go get some more, I'll go fix that. If it's, I need to have somebody on my team that has a skill set that I don't have, I'll go fix that. But, um, you know, just hardworking people that like to have fun and, and ultimately want to take care of the people around them. It's the customer and the consumer and the dealer. We're all in this together, right? This is a long game. You know, I, some of these people that I've been working with, I've been working with for 22, 23 years now. Right. So it's the same people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we've switched shirts mm-hmm. and sometimes we switch companies. But, you know, I, I go to the Farm Progress show or I go to Louisville and I see some of those people that I called on in early 2000, 2001 when I was out beating the street. And it's the same farmers. Yeah. And if I had done that guy wrong early on, it's done. Right. You know, that he knows who you are at that point. So to me, it's a long game. Yeah. Yep. Oh, it is. Um, <clears throat> you said a lot of interesting things there not being afraid because if you're the one making decisions, you're going to fail or you're going to make mistakes. So the fear, the decisions and the mistakes, it's all like a triangle. If you're afraid, then you're not going to make any decisions. (laughs) And if you make the decisions, you're going to make the mistake. So you can't really fear any of them. So that's really interesting that you say that because I know a lot of people and have seen a lot of people, whether it's customers or whatever, that are that won't make a decision because they're afraid. And uh, when when you're not afraid of the decision, because you know, um, when you make a decision, you're either going to be right <clears throat> or you're going to be wrong. You can be wrong as long as you learn from it. So then the next time you make a similar decision, you fall to the right side. And making mistakes, I think, uh, is a good thing you need to fail several, several times because you can't be really good at something without being really terrible at it at one point. Um, so I, that is very interesting because you see it all the time. The people that, that are afraid to go further and that are afraid to do things, it's because they don't want to make the mistake in my opinion. Well, and as a business leader with employees, you, you have to be, if you fail, if you make a mistake, you have to be the first person to raise your hand and say, I screwed up. Yeah. I, I take it. It's on me. Don't pass the buck. If, if, if ultimately you're in charge and you had the judgment call of what to do there and it didn't turn out right, you have to own it. Right. But that all, you just sent a signal to your team, not only that you're fallible just the same as they are, but life's not over when you make a, make a mistake. Right. It, it, it will go on. Yeah. And it's not about whether we make mistakes or not. It's about what we do about it when we, when we do. Right. So, you know, I've wronged customers inadvertently before. And as, when I find out about it, I go, okay, let's figure out what, what will make you happy. Yep. Let's see where I screwed up. And then I learn from that experience and I try not to do it again. You know, I, I've always been a fan of just being completely honest with people because like I said, I'm, I'm not smart enough to remember all these stories that you got to tell people when you're dishonest. It's way easier for me just to be <laughs> honest with people. And, and you know, yeah, it leads to some hard conversations. But again, you know, part of my mentoring when I was coming up is 
go have those hard conversations and have them first thing in the morning or on a Monday. Don't wait till Friday or don't wait till three in the afternoon because you'll kick it down the road and you won't sleep that next night either. Right. So if there's a tough conversation to be had, it, you know, maybe I made a mistake and, and I got to fix something. Say it, get it out in the open. Right. Or even if employees made a mistake, you owe it to them to let them know that, hey, I, I didn't agree with this. Um, next time, I'd rather you did it this way. But then you followed up with, but I'm glad that you took it upon yourself to make a decision. Right. Yeah. Because I don't want everybody piled up at my door right. waiting to be told what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me what to do yeah. next. Uh, I have yeah. done something wrong if that happens. Yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. Um, you know, on the dealership side, we touched on it a little bit this morning, you know, um, and I asked the question about what have you seen change in the last five years with the farmer? How has it changed with the dealerships and, and not only for Hardy, <clears throat> but dealerships in general, of course, the one I'm most familiar with here in Ohio is the ag pro story, yep. but that's not the end of the line. In my opinion, what are you seeing with your dealers and how, how are your dealers changing and where does this thing end? Again, I, I kind of wish I knew on that one too. Uh, I think I told your dad earlier today, you know, that one of the things that keeps me up the most at night, and this is a this is a hardy and an ET thing, both, is getting that product to market ultimately is is one of my biggest stressors in life. Because I've seen um, I've seen the dealer network change so much. And we call it dealer consolidation, but it's not just consolidation. So you have um, the main line, the John Deere, the, the Case, the New Holland, where they've be, either they're closing stores or they're combining under larger entities. They're not letting in um, short line equipment, or if they do, they're not going to stock that short line equipment. So that's bad for things that I make, um, things that I want to distribute and get it to market. But also, uh, when we went through an eight-year down cycle, the really small businesses, those two to five employee dealerships, those maybe two to 10 employee dealerships, when that person got to retirement age, they hung it up. Uh, and they said, you know what, I've, I've got my farm ground here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rent that out, and I'm, I'm gonna go to the house. And it took a lot of good dealerships out uh, nationwide. Maybe it didn't affect locally as much, but when you look at this across the US and Canada, it took a lot of dealerships out. And it makes it hard for us to, to get our products to market because we don't have a, a Fenega equipment dealership on every corner uh you know from an et perspective we got a great uh service partner and dealer in ohio with buckeye application they've been with et we do a, a little bit different structure here but we do a structure that works here well we control the sales force and buckeye does our service and support force so that particular scenario works good for us but we had to get creative right because that situation uh, wasn't working in the configuration that it was. It's the difference between uh, opening your own company stores. Is we didn't do that because we wanted to. We would have sure as heck like to uh, had a third-party dealer that we could have taken our product to because, you know, when I started, I started with a laptop and a folding table and a cell phone, and I had never sold equipment at retail before. That's that's a heck of a learning curve to go through. Mm, yeah. You know, how do you set a dealership up? What do you put in stock? How do you hire your technicians and, and you le I learned by doing I mean we that's we started that in a leaky building with a laptop and a folding table and you know we built it into a honorable business that I was proud of yeah um, so I've, I've seen that side of it but I've also seen the unwinding of that too where you know when these dealerships go away and 
we feel, uh, Hardy feels it and, and ET feels it too, this deep commitment to these guys that have bought this piece of equipment or these folks that have bought this equipment out there, we owe it to them to have a support network to take care of them. And that's getting increasingly harder to do. Um, and I'll be candid, I don't know how we're gonna solve all this, but I know it won't be a one size fits all, right? So, I mean, Hardy's been selling in Ohio for a number of years and we've got some good dealers here, um, but we're losing some too. So if we're not replacing on the backside, eventually we wind up with very few or potentially none. Right. Um, I don't, I don't see that as happening, but um, you know, the world's a scary place. Anything can happen. So we have to continue to protect uh, the, the area as much as we can. Same thing, uh, both companies that we're going to be creative as we have to be um, because we want to be here generations from now. That's our goal right. is, you know, we want to build a company that can, build products that are going to solve customers' problems, that they think it's a good value, they're glad that they bought it, and then be there for them, hopefully to the end of time, right? To, yeah, to, to trade that piece in. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> and we've, we've seen products come and go. We really have. And um, the longevity of, of these companies is that dedication to support. Because that first purchase, that's just a moment in time in the relationship. Right. It's That's just a snapshot in the moment of time. Right. Uh, we've talk a lot et we talk about it at hardy our, our hardy team says it all the time and they say it out loud is you know sales sells the first piece of equipment and support sells everyone behind it yeah because if you don't support that piece of equipment that person is not going to own it very long right the farmer either has the means the capital the the internet whatever he needs to have or whatever they need to have to go get rid of your equipment and go buy something else because they will do it right mm -hmm. because yeah. they can yeah yeah the they can do it in a heartbeat yes. just as fast as they bought yours. Absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, we, we see the dealership consolidation or dealer groups forming all the time, more and more every day. And it's interesting. You always hear farmers around that area grumble about it. You hear that people are leaving that dealership and, and the world's ending, but they just keep buying stores. So something, <laughs> something's working, you know what's working that that we aren't hearing about or aren't seeing but you know <clears throat> the green paint sells people are loyal to it and i i, I don't know uh it, it seems that the red dealerships are doing it too though so i i don't know um yeah i don't know it of course it, it makes companies like us uh in my opinion uh shine because we carry the products that the large ones don't want to and so um, I guess it allows us to do what we're doing. Well, we have to be consent, content to solve customers' problems on a different scale. If, if you want to sell 100 sprayers a year, your dealership has to look different than it looks today. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to say, okay, I'm willing to sell 30 sprayers a year, my operation can probably look a whole lot like it looks today. I don't have to go take that big risk. I don't have to bring on two more service technicians and grow beyond what I'm capable of. And, and we grow within our means. Uh, we've, I've, I've seen that a lot is when these businesses sometimes outgrow their means, anybody can be successful for six or 12 months yeah. or look successful for six or 12 months. Right. Who's there five years from now? Yeah. That, that's where the rubber meets the road yep. and you separate the men from the boys that's for sure and and you see it all the time <clears throat> you know it, it's easy to look successful um but you know you you see these dealerships that have been in business for 
100 years maybe. And that stuff like that's impressive. And you look at how they're built and their culture, and that's where you can find the secrets is the people that they hire and, and the backbone of that company is is what made it what it is today. You know, one of the one of the things early in my career, the folks that mentored me uh, pushed, impressed upon a lot of us was you don't have to look like everybody else, right? If you look and act like everybody else and try and be everybody else, but you don't, you're not selling what they have, or you don't have the distribution network that they have. You don't. Those two things don't add up, right? right? You you have to work with what you have. You have to work with the gifts that you have, or the people that you have, the products that you have, and then try to be the best at it. Yep, yep, yeah. If you're if you're just like everyone else, you're you're gonna not go down the road that you need to go down. You have to pave the road yourself. The road that you need to go down is dirt. <laughs> you have to pay them. Yep. So, you know, Hardy only makes sprayers. That's it. They don't make spinners. They don't make spreaders. They don't make side dress bars. They could. They oh, yeah. certainly they have the I'm engineers sure. and the manufacturing technology to do that. But that intense focus on sprayers has allowed them to engineer that product from tip to tail mm-hmm. and to what you know make the best trailed sprayer on the planet. Mm-hmm. So and, and know it and and absolutely know that product inside and out and have the support network inside and out that, to do that. So that intense focus has led to their success. You know, when ET was acquired in 2016, they were one of the last few privately held sprayer companies in North America. They only made sprayers. Yeah. Right? They didn't they didn't deviate into other product lines. We only wanted to do things that were complementary to what we were already doing. And you know, you got to have a secret sauce. Um, you know, with this with Apache, the secret sauce was the mechanical drive, the simplicity of the sprayer. With Hardy, I think it's that that tip-to-tail integrated uh, process. That's the secret sauce. Those are the things that are hard to copy. Yeah. So yeah. You know, not not everybody can come in and just copy what you have there. Yeah. And you know, for us, if we were going to go try to make a toolbar, you know, we'd go and look at what everybody else is doing on a toolbar and probably make one that looks just about like the one that they make. So what's yep. our secret sauce? Right. We yeah. don't have any in that particular try to cut them by a thousand dollars and if you're competing on price yeah that's a that's a tough spot to live yeah you can't live there long i remember when seed tenders first came out and the box seed tenders and we we looked at it and we thought golly we can probably make that that's not too tough but the same thing is can we make one that's leaps and bounds better than everybody else in the market and sell it at a price that is competitive and right the answer was no yeah right. so yeah, leave it to J and M and and the guys. <clears throat> yep, that's a, a big decision that every manufacturer has to make. You know dang well in the back room they're talking about new products, and you know half the products they're talking about are already being made right yes. now. Uh, when really they could spend a little bit of time knowing their product better and supporting their de- dealerships better, and they will gain the revenue that they're wanting to gain by building new products. Mm-hmm. because the new product that they make, they're probably going to do it about halfway. And uh, yeah, so we, I see a lot of that with manufacturers. <clears throat> um, I don't have a whole lot more. Um, we're creeping up on about an hour and a half already. Wow. But uh, <laughs> um, what what is it that, that you thought we might talk about on the podcast that we didn't maybe? Anything? Uh, you know, I didn't go into it with any expectations. Um, you know, one of the things that I probably don't say enough of, um, and I, I would say that the team at Hardy for sure, the team at ET for sure, you know, both teams, because I would, 
I'm not going to be on a team I'm not proud to be a member of um, is the people there that uh, I'm I'm so thankful of both of those operations have come through so much change you know party with a with a move in manufacturing ET with a purchase um, you know I guess six years ago now but if you look at the core of both of those companies the core people are the same um, and that's really important to me because it's the the team that you go to market with I mean that's your that's your battle team and oh yeah. you know, it, it gets rough in the spring you guys know that right it, it gets rough it gets oh, hard yeah. um, fortunately we don't have to run at that pace year-round because it it would probably be intolerable but yeah um, I'm I'm super proud and and humbled to be a part of those teams um, and I'm, I'm always impressed when I hear James or, or Tim or those guys talk that uh, you know I'm not your product guy and I'm not your support guy, but you know, thank God that there's guys like them that <laughs> take their job serious. Right. And, yeah. and they're, they're students of their trade. Yeah. Uh, we, we use that terminology a lot is be a student of your trade. If you're going to choose to be in product support, be the best egg on product support person you can is know that stuff really, really well. And yeah, you know, no one likes to be buried on the phone all the time taking customer calls because nobody calls in on customer support line happy. Right. They don't call in and say, you know what, it's 70 and sunny and everything is working. Yeah. Yep. But be a student of your trade. Help that person as eager and as best as you can. And, you know, because none of the rest of this stuff happens without those teammates there um, yeah. working towards the common good. So mm -hmm. it, I'm super thankful that those, I, I've been a part of some really great teams and I hope to be for a long time yet. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. I'm excited to get to know Hardy better. Of course, I learned a lot today. Um, I didn't know much more about him other than the yellow and red paint, you know, before today. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I I see it being a long-term relationship, and I can't wait to sell the first sprayer. Yeah. Excellent. So, Not if I beat you first. <laughs> well, <laughs> Cody. There's still hours left in the day. So. <laughs> there are. Um, well, that's all I've got. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah. And uh have you ever listened to one of ours before? I have, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You don't have to lie about no, that. No, I absolutely okay. have, yeah. Well, hopefully this gives our, our listeners some more content. And, uh, you know, we're going to spit out podcasts all the time. So this won't be the last one that we drag you into. So <laughs> no, bring maybe, it on. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we'll have to go down to uh, the manufacturing facility or, or ET or somewhere next time yep. mm -hmm. and, and visit there for the, for the next podcast. So well, we're going to jump off of here and move on with the day yep. Uh, yep. we've been in training this morning learning more about hardy uh recording the podcast and uh now we probably better go sell something yeah so. yeah all right guys well that's all i've got thanks for tuning in